We're battling a relentless and intense storm of negativity. And sometimes the world feels like it's spinning out of control. And you know, maybe it is. With it comes a growing sense of improbability and even impossibility. And it's real. It's real when we put fuel in our tank, try to put food on our table, or think into the future about retirement or educating our children. This concept of certainty is giving away to uncertainty, security to insecurity, and as we meander to most media nowadays, we find ourselves in this crossfire hurricane of nastiness. And in doing so, we lose touch of reality and being a human being. We're not gonna forget. We're coming for you politically, politically to vote you out. What the hell can we do to take back our country? I mean, it's getting to the point now where it's just starting to look scary. I mean, I'm, I'm just furious about what's happening to our police. But I'm telling you, it's certainly affecting my health because I'm so pissed off all the time about what's going on. But I'm sure my blood pressure is through the you roof. You are going to make me double down on the decision I made in the voting booth. You are not for freedom. It hurts to feel this way, especially in a country like ours, which should be dreaming and pursuing. But this is our current state. There's no magic wand. There's no motivational, inspirational cure from a guru. There's no politician promising to take you to a promised land. It's going to take a long time to work our way through it. But what I've learned is you are special. I didn't get this from a book. I discovered it by chatting with ordinary people who do extraordinary things, despite challenging and sometimes severe circumstances. I learned that you can turn negativity into positivity, impossibility into possibility, and that you can make things happen versus just watching and wondering what happened. I'm not saying that my podcast will put even a tiny dent into how you're feeling, but I promise it won't hurt. And you know what? It might even help. These stories are not about me. They're not five steps to this or that. I'm not trying to pretend to be Tony Robbins or Oprah. These are true stories about real people who dug deep to win a gold medal, entrepreneurs who failed and failed and failed but kept trying, people who broke through gender bias, ethnic barriers. They recovered from horrible accidents. They survived the abuse of horrific childhood. Leaders who chose to take a higher purpose than profit. Artists who dedicated their life to creating incredible music or art and finding an audience they would appreciate. So in doing so, I hope these shows lift your spirits as they lift mine. And I hope how you approach life will provide you with some invaluable insights and ideas on how to approach yours. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Carl Dixon, who is one of Canada's rock voices. Carl Dix is a musician, he's a composer, and today he's also an inspirational speaker. Carl joined Coney Hatch in the 80s, opening for Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and Peter Frampton. Since then, Carl's written music for film and television, has a solo career, was lead singer for The Guess Who, he played in April Wine. But more than that is the mere fact that Carl Dixon is alive today that makes him a Canadian rock legend. 2008, high-speed car accident in Australia almost killed him left him in a coma for 10 days. He had 52 injuries. He's reshaped his life and made a remarkable recovery. And his insights on life is why I'm thrilled to have him on Chatter That Matters. Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Tony. Carl, we're going to get to your car accident and your near-death experience and how it changed your perspective on life. But first, what I'm also really fascinated about is that so many people aspire to be a musician, to play to that big audience and to just that, to turn that song into something that moves thousands of people, and you did it. And I want to sort of get to that backstory. So you grew up in Sault Ste. Marie in Ontario. What was your family like? Like, tell me about your parents, siblings, and your environment. Well, well okay. So Sault Ste. Marie at that time uh, was really dominated by the Algoma steel plant. My mom came here with her family from Estonia. This uh, recent problem with 
Russia invading the Ukraine resonates with me. The Russians have always been the boogeyman since I was uh, old enough to think and hear the stories about my family's escape from them back in World War II. But my mom had the, uh, the dogged Estonian character. You just keep going, don't complain, just find a way forward. My dad uh, is... Uh, Irish-Canadian descent, uh, and he was the artistic, an artistic jack-of-all-trades, I suppose. From him, I saw the possibility of, hmm, you can make your own music, write your own things, uh, paint pictures. He, he was much more of a variety of artistic talents than I've applied myself to, and never really pursued it. He was too scattered. So I learned the artistic possibilities from him. And from my mom, I learned, <laughs> finish things. <laughs> Get to the end of what you're working on. When I've interviewed other artists in the show, like Gil Moore, Harry Connick, Bob Reson, they talked about in their house, music flowed. Part of the oxygen of the home. Was that like that at your house that you just kind of constant in the background, somebody tapping their toes to something? More a case of um, the influence of, of music as a, a pervasive thing, but not a, not really based on the pop that I it was going on in the rock music when, that was in the air. My dad was a huge classical fan. His great dream was that I might uh, become a concert pianist one day, and maybe he could come see the shows. I don't know. So I got started on the piano when I was three, four years old. Yes, the music uh, in the house was always there, and the piano was right there taking up the... It was the biggest item in the house, in the living room. So I dutifully played it half an hour every day and did recitals and lessons. And then I started to hear what was going on the radio. And it really, from an early age, it just swept me up. And, oh, I like a catchy tune. I like having these thoughts come to me musically. I can remember hearing things on the radio that are, you know, weren't rock, weren't hip, particularly even, but small town radio, you got a taste of just about all kinds of things through the course of the day. That was the pervasiveness of it, the all-aroundness of music in my growing up. Did your dad, I mean, he always dreamed of seeing you as a concert pianist. Did he ever see you as, as a, a rock star? A couple of times. He wasn't, he wasn't way into it. <laughs> he did finally come out once and say afterward when I saw him back at home, you know, Carl, you could make a very good Hamlet if you ever chose to act based on the way you carry yourself. <laughs> so, yeah, you could take that rock thing and turn it into something really good if you chose to, Carl, was kind of the message. And how did that make you feel? Because we all want to live up to our parents' expectations. I mean, it sort of, you know, stapled you to a piano bench at age three or four thinking that you might play a, a concerto one day. Did, did you ever feel that, you know, I wish my dad could just see I am moving audiences like classical music? Music moved him? I guess there was that kind of thought, but you know, he, he sort of had a resistance to um, me, seeing me realize my dreams. He had a, a bit of, a, I suppose, an ornery temperament that he didn't get there, even though he never really stuck to anything. Radio personality, TV news reader, teacher, university professor, minor logger at different times. Uh, he was in the army at the end of World War II. So all kinds of different pathways in his life. You know, uh, there were a few times where I I tried to please my dad, and I, eventually I realized that it's never going to work. So I just let it go after a while. He did, many years later, during the time I was with the Guess Who, I guess, look at me and say, you know, Carl, you've accomplished a hell of a lot considering. <laughs> and he left it at that. 
<laughs> I guess that's about the best compliment, as you said. And, and it's an interesting, it's interesting to study, you know, because I started with nothing my, and I became quite a successful entrepreneur. And I think the way you said, it, I've never thought about it, how my dad viewed it was always like, can't you get a real job? <laughs> so you leave, you leave the Sioux and you move to Montreal. How old were you? And what was the reasons that you decided Montreal was maybe where you'd find your dream and your path? Well, there'd been a couple of stops uh, along between the Sioux and, uh, and Montreal where my dad moved our family around. And I'd been in a few bands that went on to play shows and went on tours that were kind of disastrous because we were such greenhorns, but learned a hell of a lot. On the, in the course of one of those tours, I met a band from Montreal out in Newfoundland. The band I was in at the time was in the process of cracking up. We, they, we got on well. I could tell they, they liked me as a singer and performer. And I heard years later that they actually thought I was amazing. So, but they didn't tell me that. You got to play your cards close to the vest. So uh, my band broke up. I was looking for something to do. I called a couple of months later because I had gotten their phone number in Montreal. And I said, what's going on with you guys? And they said, well, our drummer just quit. I said, I play drums. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I got my conservatory and grade eight conservatory in drums and percussion, but I'd never played drums for a band ever. But I thought, well, here's an opportunity. I'm going to step up and, and I believed I could do it. So I went for the audition, drove to Montreal and they didn't say anything either way. And then uh, a couple of days went by. I drove home. They called and said, well, our dr drummer decided to stay, but we'd like to add you as an additional member, as a fifth member of the band playing guitar and vocals. Do you want to do that? So I said, yeehaw, I'm off to Montreal. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Carl Dixon. At the height of his musical career, he was smacked down, crushed in a car accident, barely clinging to his life. His world crumbles. Carl loses everything physically, his employment, his family business. He suffers a severe traumatic brain injury, 75% disabled. And he's left with a mountain of debt by his former advisor. You want to hear a comeback story? Here it is. Carl, take us back to Coney Hatch. So you're in Montreal. How did that band come about? I answered an ad in the Toronto Star Classifieds. After almost two years in Montreal, I'd realized, okay, this isn't moving me ahead. I guess I was 20 when I got there, 19 or 20 when I made that move. And I just felt, okay, this is not getting me where I want to go. So I moved back to uh, just chill at my parents for a month or two while I figured out the next move. Every day I was reading the Toronto Star Classifieds called Dramatic Musical Talent. And you'd see bands advertising for members to join or need a sound man or a jazz lounge needs a piano player every Thursday, call this number. There was an ad one day that said, working rock band with management needs a guitar playing singer. So I called the number and that was Coney Hatch with the manager they had at the time. I was replacing a guy who'd decided music's too hard. I'm going back to school. <laughs> and, you know, that's uh, that's a common tale. Lots of people are driven to try the dream. Very few have the staying power to, to stick with it because they can't see what the value is at a certain point. And it's it's really a difficult life. And mo it's not everyone's cut out for it as much as they might love music. Went to see them uh, perform with that singer. They were, they were finishing out some dates until they found a new singer. And I thought they were the most unusual band I'd seen because they had all these uh, original songs that were re really kind of weird because of the mishmash of personalities in the band. But I also realized 
while they do have 12 of their own songs. And that's a big step toward moving ahead, moving forward, up the ladder. And that's what I couldn't get my friends in Montreal to get interested in. So audition and they chose me. Yes, yes, it's you, Carl. Come on, join us. And then we got to work writing new songs. It was like a rocket riot almost. Within three months, we had a group of batch of songs, new ones that we'd written together. And Kim Mitchell came and saw us and and he got involved and things just took off rather quickly. Uh, within nine months of me joining Coney Hatch, we were signing a, an international record deal. Tell me a little bit about you suddenly, you know, getting involved in the songwriting process because and up to then, I imagine you were just writing your own songs. How did it feel to move from kind of that, I'm in charge of everything to more collaborative? Because I think one of the things, that, lessons I often give to entrepreneurs is one plus one can be 10. If you find the right combination. It's it's amazing the energy and creativity that can come from it. That's a variation, what you just said on a saying I have. The power of two is more than the power of two. And it's a hell of a lot more than the power of one. If you find people that are like-minded and share the ambition and the vision you have, and you allow them to express what they've got and bring the best they have to the party, and you respond in kind, there's no telling what you can end up with. The neat collaborative aspect of music is that it grows into something that it never would have become if just one person was calling all the shots and it came totally out of their brain. How do you figure out who has influence or authority when you're kind of collaborating and you feel this riff is like, this is the the connective tissue that's going to make this song great or somebody comes in with lyrics? Like, How do you find that path so that through a series of compromises and collaboration, there's something that everybody's happy with? Best idea wins. That has to be the rule. Stan Meisner, who's a a well-known Canadian songwriter, and I wrote a few times together, and he had this great line. If I suggest something, we begin with a a platform or an idea. Here's here's a a lyric, or here's a a chorus hook, or this song could be about something. And I'd throw something out there, and he'd say, hmm, it's not killing me yet. (laughs) You have to, (laughs) you just have to be open to the fact that not everything you throw out there is going to be great, but you also have to feel secure enough in yourself and with the partner to be able to try everything, even if you sound, feel like you sound dumb, because we're not the best judge of what other people will, will respond to. Lots of times, if you think something is dumb, yeah, it is dumb, but you got to try it to get to the good stuff sometimes. So you get this international record deal and next thing you're on MTV, you're backing Judas Priest, Iron Maiden. An interview though, I saw you said is we never got to the top. We got to the point where we could see it. What did it feel to climb so close, a few rungs away from all the trappings that come with being being at the top of, uh, of the music industry? Well, it's exciting. It's thrilling to feel like, okay, so I, if I think back to where I was just a year or two ago, you know, scraping around the lowest end bars that there are and, and nobody really paying attention to now, we're on concert stages with big acts who sell lots of tickets and we're part of that then you can feel pretty excited and good about that. But you it's very important not to lose sight of the fact that there's only a, a small portion of that crowd that came to see you. And sometimes it's a very tiny portion. Other times, you know, depending on the market where you're playing, 
you know, have people who know about you there. And they came, oh, I came to see the opening band. That's a wonderful state if you can get to that, because then you can springboard that to bigger popularity. I'm just curious how the bands treat the hierarchy. I'm always interested in hierarchy in business. If you're the backup band, are you invited into their tent? Are you part of the crowd? Or are you kind of just sort of dismissed as, you know, you're one step above uh, maybe the roadies? It really depends on the band, you know. Every band has their own character and personality. I will say that the bands who are more secure with themselves are generous and open. And for instance, just the two biggest names that you mentioned there, uh, Judas Priest, they were friendly enough and a little... Uh, but a little standoffish. We would talk to them in the daytime because we saw each other so frequently. I think we did 20-some shows with them across Canada and down the States, and almost 40 with Iron Maiden in the same kind of pathway. Of course, seeing each other all the time, and they, they realize, okay, we don't hate the opening guys. They seem to be nice guys. So they'll go out of their way sometimes to say hi. But there was this always feeling of distance. Yeah, yeah, the opening act, right. We've been through that all. We, we got no time for this. Iron Maiden, they were just only a couple of years older than us. At the t- well, they still are, I guess. <laughs> uh, so they were more palsy and just, oh, we're all, we're all mates here. You know, let's have fun. Let's laugh. And we're all kind of, you know, when we're up in the arena or outside it, we have parties. And so that was, that was a friendlier and, and better connection. And it la- endures to this day. And then there are groups like Ted Nugent. We opened for him. And his road crew took it on themselves. And this, one of my sayings is every organization is a reflection of the person at the top. Ted's kind of a harsh guy. His road crew decided it was their privilege to be harsh to us. And they sabotaged our sound on our hometown gig, Exhibition Stadium in Toronto. And they made sure they sounded, that we sounded awful. They were intimidating, like almost like bikers, the way they treated our sound man and crew. So they just felt like they were acting on their boss's behalf, make sure that nobody in the opening act steals bought the boss's thunder. I read a quote that you, that I really liked that you said is being a musician was never about trying to get girls to be popular. It's always about trying to recreate the thrill that great music gives to you. Can you hold on to that as you start rising to the top and all the temptations that come with rock stars, the parties, the drugs? It depends once again. On your own character, your own temperament. I saw people all around me give in to whatever was put in front of them, but they were kind of like that before they got to the concert hall, <laughs> before they became more popular musicians and the temptations just tripled. If you do that in your regular life, you're going to find lots of ways to fall prey to that. And if you're not inclined that way, you won't be an easy mark. I never touched drugs at all inhaled a joint a couple of times over the years. And, you know, I thought, this is dumb. I'm a singer. I want to preserve my singing ability and my health. Uh, I've never smoked a cigarette. I never touched drugs. I hardly drank over the years. I hit, you know, a party once in a while. But for me, it was always be responsible, keep it together, stay in good physical shape, because what you do as a performer and a musician requires you to be in good physical health. So I was always running and doing push-ups and sit-ups. And as uh, one of my friends used to say, ah, Carl's always ready for that call from the coast. <laughs> Hi, it's Tony Chapman. My guest today is Carl Dixon. He's one of Canada's rock voices. When we come back, the legendary Burton Cummings leaves one of the top bands in the world, the Guess Who, and Carl Dixon steps in as her lead singer. 
For eight years, he rocks audiences all over North America until a shocking and horrific car accident in 2008 leaves him near death, extensive titanium implants, a glass eye, and almost broke. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. A big shout out to aspiring entrepreneurs. The Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship is part of Western University. The Globe and Mail and RBC have come together to create the Founder's Journey. It's an online entrepreneurial process course and it's taught by award-winning professors. It's free and it'll help you turn your startup dreams into reality. Go to thefoundersjourney.ca to learn more. Entrepreneurship matters to you, it matters to Canada, and it matters to RBC. You stop, think, accept, renew, and thank. When you have something dramatic, an event in your life that is, it takes you by surprise. You know, you end up just knocked down, register the experience. Don't try to just plow ahead and ignore what just happened to you. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters, my chat with one of Canada's most iconic voices, a songwriter, motivational speaker, and survivor of the car accident that you would walk away from. So Carl Dixon, the guess who comes knocking at your door, how did that come about? Right, well, the longer you play music, the more you find the connections uh, that bear fruit if you were a decent person on the way up. People remember that. And if you, if you have skill and talent and a good personality, which is just as important, and they'll call you if they need something that you can fulfill. The guess who had been playing without Burton for some time, you know, he kept quitting the band, basically. So which, that's funny to me to hear him still going on about how they, <laughs> they went on without him. I guess he thought everybody should just go find a day job once he quit. But a friend of mine who I'd worked with in Toronto, a Winnipeg musician, and he, we, Coney Hatch used to rent his cube van <laughs> to haul our gear around for, at one time. We got together, wrote some songs at one time, a fine musician, piano player. He was hired by the guess who, without Burton, to be the piano player in the band. The singer they had was quitting, and they contacted me and said, would you be interested? And it's funny, because that came along just at a time when I was feeling like, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to sustain a musical career. I had a, a young family, two daughters, one three years old, one one-year-old, and uh, a house, and I was not making enough money. So a friend of mine, uh, Pat Stapleton, the old NHL defenseman, he, con- he convinced me to hang in there, keep going, and not walk away from what I was doing, but look for other ways to pursue and use my ability. Hanging in there meant I was still in the running when my friend, uh, Leonard was his name, called me and said, look, the guess who needs a singer? Are you interested? And I said, yeah. They sent me a, a, a tape with the, the live tracks from a show and the vocals removed, and they asked me to sing over that and s- submit it. And then they could judge if I was a good fit. Well, I heard later that a couple of them thought it was Burton playing a joke on them because it was so uh, so close to the way they, you know, the music uh, should be sung and recorded. A year and a half earlier, being on the verge of, I don't think I can do this anymore, um, to getting a leg up into a higher level than I'd ever been. No sugar to stand beside 
we step in? I mean, I, I love the story that you say at age 11, your first RPM you bought, for the, uh, the audience probably will know what an RPM is, this little 45 record, was laughing by the Guess Who. It's, it, so you step into sort of Burton Cummings' shoes. Oh, yeah, actually, I was, I was nine years old when I got that. It was the first, yeah, I, then I became a mad record collector following that. It's so amazing that was your first record. And then, yeah. so when you're offered a gig like that, and even when you're doing the recording tape, do you feel it's your job to impersonate Burton Cummings, or is it your job to interpret? Well, that's a fine line. You know, additionally, it was the, the Guess Who was the first big concert I ever went to. I saw them at Exhibition Stadium in 19... 19- 73 when I was just being allowed to go to concerts. So I did see Burton in action in, in the glory days as well. My mission is when I took on that gig and if I do anything similar, it meant so much to me. And I know it meant so much to the fans, the, the feeling that came off those records, the way they were, that's what's deeply lodged in everybody's memory. So to me, it's a, a cheat on the fans of the music, if they come out to see, in this case, the Guess Who, and some guys are up there messing with it to do it their own way, that ain't, that's not fair. And that's not serving the, the audience. Uh, I learned a long time ago, the key to having longevity, it's not about me. It's, it's about them. Make them happy. You'll keep getting called back. There's so many stories of someone that had to step in, take over the microphone, your queen in excess journey. When do you get to the point, because you're eight years, you've been doing, you were doing this with the guests too, where you feel this is your stage versus I'm just a hired gun to, to play a role on it? Two different times I was called in to join the band. It was interrupted, my, my duration with them by the reunion of the year, in the year 2000. So I had a few years before that and a few years after that. In the second time with the band, it really was starting to be told to me by the people, the management running the band, well, this is the band going forward. You know, Carl Dixon is now the lead singer of the Guess Who. Burton quit again. We need to go forward. So you will be increasingly the face of the Guess Who and the voice of the Guess Who going forward. Now, I embraced that in terms of the opportunity it provided to be able to plan my future going forward. But I also never lost sight of the fact that we were, I in particular, was standing on the shoulders of giants, so to speak. The people who'd done the amazing writing and performing of these records all those years ago, that's the template uh, from which all this was drawn. So I never stopped being aware of that, nor sending messages when I could from time to time to Burton. Just please let Burton know that I am honoring what he created here with all respect. I'm, I was never trying to imitate him, but I put it uh, as close as Carl Dixon is capable of making it the way people remembered it. Do you think that his the reunion tour where he came back for a couple of years was in some ways a compliment to how strong you were filling in the shoes and he, he wanted to let the audience remember that he was the original lead singer? I can't pretend to get inside Burton's head, but of course, you know, the, it was all spurred on by the Pan Am Games appearance they did in Winnipeg. They played four songs for a quarter million dollars or something crazy <laughs> uh, to just re- have a reunion in Winnipeg. So there was, there was a heavy cash incentive, but there was also, I think, yes, uh, a wish by him to reclaim his throne. 
So I want you now to take us back to 2008. You're in Australia. You're having a much needed break. I mean, just listening to you earlier, I mean, your break is not about falling down some cesspool or partying. You're trying to just get mentally healthy. What happens? I mean, I've listened to your speeches. It's so powerful. Maybe for my listeners, just give us a sense of what happened in Australia. On a break from the guess who I was visiting uh, my family, my daughter was starring in a TV show called The Saddle Club. And they were filming and spending almost a year down in Australia away from home. I was getting clear messages from my then wife that she didn't think, now that they were in Australia, she didn't think it was going to work out too well in the future for us. And so I was getting very worried about our family because I was always all about family, whatever it takes to, you know, family's the priority. So I was down there for this, my third trip to Australia and in a, in a right state, as they say in England. And uh, I became what I've learned to call emotionally impaired, so worried, uh, apprehensive that I forgot for about one minute that I was driving on the way home in Australia, not under the home conditions. And I forgot they drive on the other side of the road there. It was as simple as that. I was under such emotional stress that I just fell into automatic pilot as if I was back home in Canada. And in less than a minute, some poor guy coming home from work on the correct Australian side of the road came around to bend. We met each other on a little two-lane country road at about 100 kilometers each. And I got crushed under his much bigger car. I was in a Toyota. He was in a Land Cruiser. And he came right up my hood and over my head. And he kept it going. And that was uh, the moment of impact that changed everything. Two, two seconds or so changed my whole life going forward. Canadian rock singer Carl Dixon has spent the past three months in a Melbourne hospital after a head-on collision near Dalesford. He suffered devastating injuries in the crash, including losing his right eye. Really just a mangled piece of roadkill almost that they pulled out of that wreck after an hour and 45 minutes of trying. And I'm told that the ambulance drivers told the police officer this guy has no hope. My guest today is Carl Dixon incredible career, dedicated musician, family man in Australia. His daughter's in a television show. You know, he's an emotional mess because his wife's questioning their marriage and he finds himself driving on the wrong side of the road and has an accident. So Carl, when did you know how bad that accident was to you? How long after that did you even come to terms with how different your life was going to be? Oh, uh, in the day or two after I woke up from the coma 10 days later, I was Total. My head took a severe blow. My neck was broken. My eye was hanging out. My limbs were broken, blood gushing everywhere. I was in an altered state of consciousness. The people who attended say I was able to simply to tell them, please, you have to help me. In the time I was trapped in the car, which was almost two hours because it was such a wreck, they couldn't get me out. I faded from, con from being able to consciously respond. And I remember nothing, not a single thing, not the impact, not the time in the car, not the rescue. But I was absolutely devastated. What I learned bit by bit was that I'd had the most unbelievable medical care and rescue care. People talk about having a guardian angel. I had a squadron of them. Two questions. The one I understand is that one of the things that kept you going was a dream to sing for the Guess Who again. 
How important is it to have something as painful as all the surgeries you're going to go through and all the titanium they're going to put into you and a glass eye to have that dream out there that says is as tough as this moment is, that is something worth going after. It's everything. I was helpless and broken. I couldn't turn myself on my side without the help of two nurses in the hospital bed. So that was the stunning but sobering realization. I am broken. Uh, the power of our thoughts. This is what I've come to realize. Our thoughts are the most powerful force in the universe. And what we choose to have as our thoughts are what will guide us and either weaken us or strengthen us. I had the feeling that I can't let people down. I can't let my family down. The guess who was counting on me to get back there the next day after the accident. I was supposed to be in Biloxi, Mississippi, singing the next show with the guess who. So that feeling that we can't let people down, that's a huge one for me and always has been. And I think in general, people respond with more strength and selflessness if they feel they're doing it for somebody that they care for. Do you feel you've been given a gift that you treasure every day differently than people that have never been at the doorstep of death? I absolutely feel that way. I reflect on it frequently. And I, I think that's a similar story to anybody who's been through something you might not have come back from. For me, a quarter inch here, a quarter inch there, I might have had a very different outcome to this story. A number of people when I improbably survived, there were nurses in the hospital who broke, broke down crying when they saw I was still alive two months later because they felt there, there's no chance. Yes, the feeling that I was spared for something, it's my duty to share that. That drives me in many ways. You're changed. You're not the same as you were before this event. Something, whether it's in your physical being or your thoughts, has now altered hugely. So you have to accept what that is. And, and don't lie to yourself, don't kid yourself, because you'll just prolong the difficulty if you, if you try to hold the illusions. You renew once you've accepted by assessing, what can I still do? What's still available to me? What have I lost? Okay, so we, we can't do that anymore, but there's plenty we can still do, plenty I can still do. And finally, you thank, because nobody succeeds alone. Today, and I watched a couple of your keynotes, and they're phenomenal. I mean, not only do you provide a message from somebody that has the context you had, but you also bring up the guitar and sing, and the audience is, it's like this incredible, positive roller coaster of emotions. What's your hope that people will talk about when they get home that dinner with their, their children or their partners? I would hope that the, the positive messages of, of survival, and not just survival, but thrival, we have it in us to be the absolutely force of, of energy and positivity if we so choose. As I said, our thoughts are the most powerful force there is in the universe. I always wrap up my show with the three things that I've learned. And, and the first one, I really enjoy what you talk about your organization is a reflection of the leader and you're talking about Ted Nugent and how, you know, they were toxic to you because he was kind of toxic. And I think that's a great lesson in life for individuals that when you're picking a company to work for, you're creating a company or an organization or 
on a school board or even within your family, understand that who you are, it ripples out and it amplifies. And if you're in a position of authority, very often the notes you sing are the notes other people are going to play. The second thing I love about you is when you went after the band in Montreal that was looking for a drummer and going, I can, I'm a drummer. And you weren't a drummer. You know, you had taken some percussion courses and stuff, but you went after it because you said, you know what, this is what I want. We'll figure it out. So often in life, we refuse to get on a tightrope because we go, we just, I've never done that before. But the third and the most beautiful thing about you is you as a human being. I don't think you needed the car accident to be who you are. It certainly made your call in life to be much more about sharing your message. But you as a father, you as being a great personality, you saying, you know, the reason Guess Who came is because I spent a lot of my career playing good music, showing up for the gigs, being a good person to be around. That sense of who you are is something that has mattered to so many people. And I'll end with saying, I would bet you that that staff of 30 or 40 or 50 people in Australia put together the $6 million man, when they look back at their career in healthcare, they're going to say, one of the things I'll always remember is this broken up, almost bled to death person that showed up in our hospital and we all worked together. And boy, I can understand why they cry two months later when you're still alive. So for all of that and more, it's been absolutely a pleasure to chat with you on uh, Chatter That Matters. Joining me now on Chatter That Matters is Sasha Berganza. She's a senior manager, brand marketing at RBC. Great to be here, Tony. So Sasha, in your LinkedIn profile, you talk about your passion for marketing, technology, and creativity. I'm curious, how do you apply all three at RBC? It's always been a firm belief of mine that uh, we need to embrace technology and creativity and that that's a core part of how marketing really comes to life. And I've really enjoyed in these past years, especially in the brand environment at RBC, to see how the three intersect. You know, RBC very much now is the Ideas Bank. Um, and we recently rolled out, you know, the new brand platform, Ideas Happen Here. And it's really built on that belief that we're embracing powerful ideas as we, you know, rebuild and reimagine uh, this world post-pandemic. And so I think that RBC is really uniquely positioned to lead and contribute that. And, and a big part of that is embracing new ideas as they come along. So RBCX Music, from what I understand, you take these emerging artists, you try to help them find the audience their talent deserves. Give me an example of some of the things that you're doing for these artists that they would go, wow, I couldn't believe a bank stepped in and helped me achieve what? In the quake of the, the pandemic, we launched the first stop with RBCX Music Program. We really leaned into embracing emerging artists and giving them the support that they need to really effectively shoot their shot and still um, reach new audiences, have their music heard and develop their careers as artists first and foremost. Through the program, we've just welcomed 19 new emerging artists uh, and they get to benefit from performance opportunities, financial support, as well as media and promotional marketing from RBCX Music, but also our network of industry partners, whether that be Live Nation, AWOL, Conscious Economics, uh, Artscape. We use our connections to to help deliver to artists and connect them to resources that they wouldn't have, whether that's workshops led by industry experts or uh, a chance to promote their music on Instagram Live uh, and put some, some promotion behind that. And just a whole slew of performance opportunities. You know, we have artists slated to be at RBC Blues Fest, Cavendish Music Festival, a whole slew of, of regional opportunities, opportunities for them to put their name out there and to be discovered and to just 
tell their stories. We're excited to tell their stories. Share with us the idea why RBC putting the shoulder behind music and these emerging artists is also good for your brand. It's so important for brands to be aligned with what people care about. Um, And people care about music, but they also care about the come up story of others and the resilience. And what have we seen in this last two years if not just the the amazing story of resilience from so many, but especially emerging musicians, I think. They entered a time when live music disappeared and they had to come and, and break through the force and find you know, new ways to have their voices heard. They were up for the challenge. And as a brand, we wanted to make sure that we were there to help empower them into that new step. People really respect and value the the support of folks trying to make it in this world. And as a brand, I think it's just so important to be aligned with that, knowing how important it is to, to youth all across Canada. When I was looking at your LinkedIn page, you talked about how excited you are to see the RBCX concert series return turning to the Canadian Open. That's an interesting mashup, bringing music with your golf platform. The RBC X Music Concert Series uh, really is. So it takes place on the Friday and Saturday of the RBC Canadian Open. And it's it's one example of how we look to elevate the experience for fans that are joining us at the tournament. So for fans that join at the tournament on the Friday or Saturday, their, their grounds tickets include access to the concert series. And this year we're featuring headlining performances by, you know, hip hop icon Flo Rida and, uh, on Friday and, and Grammy award winning, you know, band Maroon 5 on the Saturday, which is just so exciting. What's really great about this is that now with the return of live music, we're also looking for new ways to still support uh, that roster of emerging artists that we have. So while we have these big headlining names. We're also looking forward to finding opportunities here to also give performance um, opportunities to our first up roster and see some featured artists from from the emerging side also be able to put their names alongside, you know, powerhouses like this. What advice can you give to the people listening to find a career path that's not only intellectually stimulating, but really fires your passion? I think with any career, you, you embrace it and there's always going to be the, the regular duties as a sign that you have to do. But at the at the core of it, the foundation should be a passion within you. Um, something that, you know, you wake up every day and, and you want to try and improve yourself in that area. You want to try and better what impacts you're making. And I think that's the true driving force of, of any career. And we all take our stepping stones to get there. And I think that those are incredibly important. You, you gain skills, you gain experience that you can take with you no matter where you go. But I think it's that moment that's defining for you when you feel like, okay, I, I couldn't go on not working on something like this. It's too important to not try to enhance every day that I'm putting my hand to it. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.